Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. So three stages of the Jewish marriage relationship, the engagement stage, the betrothal stage, and the wedding. Beautiful, beautiful wedding. First of all, the engagement stage. Now, Jewish marriages, unlike in our country, Jewish marriages were arranged by the father, which I personally think we should go back to that. Amen, parents? Because, see, I'm a father. I know. You know how the girls are nowadays. Oh, daddy's so cute. Oh, that nose, that little tiny nose. He's so cool. He's the best things in sliced bread. And oh, he's so good looking. See, that's how they choose. A father? I don't care how cute he is. I want to know, does he have a J-O-B? <laughs> Do your work? Are you lazy? I think we should go back to that. What do you think, parents? If you agree with that, clap your hands. I think we should, I, I think we should go back to that. We'd have a whole lot better marriages. And in the Jewish culture, the marriages were arranged. And it is very interesting, as you search the scriptures, where the marriage was not arranged in the scripture, where the dad didn't arrange the marriage, there was always problems. Very interesting. We know the story of Samson, who married a woman named Timnath. And there was problems. Look at that story. And then Jacob, he had to work for 14 years for Rachel and resulted in problems. So the Jewish marriages were arranged, except in one case. And that would be if the husband of the bride died. In that case, then the marriage wasn't arranged according to Jewish custom. The bride would then go and look to his brothers and choose one of them to marry. Now, I'm sure that made for some interesting conversation at home. Dad is picking a bride, you know, for the son. And the brothers are checking her out, too. And they're like, Dad, are you sure? I mean, Dad, have you prayed about that one? Look at her. Dad? Made for some interesting conversation. The first stage, the engagement stage. The second stage is the betrothal stage. The betrothal stage took place between the ages of 12 and 16 years of age. You might remember, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She was probably around 13 to 16 years old. 
And it's in this betrothal stage, very interesting, that the soon-to-be bride and groom first met each other. Because the dads arranged the wedding, they arranged the marriage, they, they, they've never met each other until the betrothal stage, and it's the first time that they meet. It's the fathers who come together, and then they settle on a price for the bride. And this price was determined by three things. First of all, the father's wealth, whether he was rich or poor. Secondly, the bride's worth. In those days, they didn't have you know, checks and visa cards and debit accounts, and so they would pay many times with chickens. So how many chickens was she worth? Two chickens. No, I don't think so. That's a little too much. One and a half is tops, man. That's tops. So with chickens or horses or whatever, and then the groom's work, the father's wealth, the price, the father's wealth, the bride's worth, and the groom's work. In cases where the groom's family was poor and, or, and dead, the groom would have to work to pay the price for the bride. Again, Jacob worked for Rachel. Caleb offered his daughter to anyone who conquered the city of Kerjath. Saul offered his daughter Michael to the man who would kill the giant. Shechem fell in love with Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and the price was set. And he had to become circumcised to identify with the Jew. So the price could be paid through work, through war, and through identification. Now I point this out because I believe that this is a beautiful illustration of what God has done for us. You see, Jesus worked for us 33 years as he ministered on the earth. There was warfare as Jesus fought long and hard on Calvary's cross, shedding his own blood to secure our salvation for eternity. And Jesus identified with us. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he left heaven and he came to the earth and he took on flesh, flesh and blood. He humbled himself and became a man. He identified with us. Now, as I said, the father has chosen us and we are the bride of his son. We have been betrothed to Jesus and the father has paid according to his wealth. A billion dollars? No, that would be nothing for God. A planet? That would be nothing for God to give. Jesus, God the Father, gave the ultimate price. It was his son, his one and only son. Oh, you know, it is found in John chapter 3, verse 16. It's on the screens. Read it with me, will you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son. Romans chapter 5, read that in your own time. It says, for God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God gave everything. He loved us so much. He gave everything in order to bring you and to bring myself and, and the people of the earth into, into communion with him and into fellowship with him and thus into the kingdom in order to make you his bride. Now, after the price was paid, very interesting. The dowry was set aside for the bride. 
And in cases she would use that dowry in case she became a widow or she became divorced. And part of the dowry was given to the father's bride or to the, to the, to the bride's dad, the father of the bride. I keep thinking of that movie, Father of the Bride. I'm sorry. The father of the bride. Part of that dowry was given to him. And then get this, something very, very interesting happens at that time. They meet together in this room. The money is placed on the table along with a contract. And this contract basically just says that, that this is a serious matter. And then the bride and the groom, get this, for the first time, they take the cup that has wine in it, and the groom gives his bride a sip, and he takes a sip. Remember Jesus at the table with the disciples? He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. You remember that? And at this point, they are legally betrothed and married. But they don't live together and they don't consummate the marriage for one year. But the agreement is so binding that if it was called off, they would have to go through a legal divorce. And if the bridegroom died, then she would become a widow. She'd be considered a widow. Well, then the next thing that happens is incredibly fascinating. It's intriguing. After the contract is signed, the cup is drank, the bride would begin to wear a veil for approximately one year. This spoke of the fact that she was taken. The veil distorted her vision. Oh, we know that Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, For now we, the bride of Christ, see through a glass darkly, but then in heaven, in his presence, face to face. Very interesting. And then the bride would begin at that point to go to work on her dress. She would start to make her dress and sew the beads on and hem the dress and, you know, get the dress ready. And while she's working on the dress, get this, the bridegroom is working on a room addition to his father's house. He's building a room. Now, you know, of course, you know, in John chapter 14, Jesus said that I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And he said, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. And so the groom would start working, but it was the father, get this, who determined when the house was finished. Now, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, but my father. Interesting. And then get this, it even gets better. The bride would from time to time receive word that the house was almost done. People, hey. The house is almost done. It's almost done. And she's like, oh, no, I'm not ready. My dress is not ready. She put on sewing machine. Get that thing done. Oh, my God. The sleeves are too short. Oh, my beads are not all. And she's sewing and she's working and he's building. It's almost ready. The house is almost ready. Oh, man, I'm getting close. I'm not ready. Hey, hey, it's done, girl. It's done. The house is done. And she's like, great. My dress is ready. And she is ready. And she's waiting for that time. Oh, and the same thing is true of us. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know the times and the seasons. Amen. And when Jesus comes, we need to be ready. And then she would finally hear that final word. The house is done. Now comes the wedding. And it become the custom of the bridegroom and the groomsmen. Get this to come 
for the wedding in the middle of the night or early in the morning. So the bride needed to be ready. And they would come and they'd be blowing their trumpets and having this party in the middle of the night or early in the morning, blowing their trumpets, shouting and yelling, the bridegroom cometh, the bridegroom cometh. People wake up the wedding today. The bride needed to be ready. The wedding takes place outside under the stars. The contract is read and the blessings pronounced. And get this, the wedding party after the actual ceremony, the whole wedding party would take off to the father's house and the marriage would be consummated. And the friend of the bridegroom would stand outside the door where the bride and the bridegroom are inside the father's house consummating the marriage. The people all stay and it's silent. Okay. They're, I mean, they all stay. They're all silent. The bride and the groom are inside. The friend of the bridegroom stands outside the door. Why? Because he's waiting to hear from the bridegroom. Okay or not okay. Now, if he said not okay... That meant that she wasn't a virgin and she could be stoned. She could be divorced just like that. And so the people now, they're all gathered. They're all waiting to hear okay or not okay. If he said the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom says, okay, well, then there's a party. And there is rejoicing for seven days. There's this huge party. A seven-day celebration begins, and everyone stays and eats and has a party for seven days. And for seven days, get this, seven days, the bride is tucked away in the house, and she is not seen for seven days. Now, the bridegroom would come out of the house to get food and go back in. I'm trying, y'all. <laughs> he come back out, get something to drink, go back in. Come back out, get something for his bride, go back in. And for seven days, he would literally go into the house and he would serve his bride. Okay, Rodney, great. That was interesting. But how does that all apply? How does that all apply to Revelation chapter 19? Well, here is where it, it, it relates to our text. Get this. At the end of the seven days, the bridegroom would come out of the building that he built and he would present his bride to the guest, and they would sit down at the wedding feast. Interesting. And from this point on, everyone would see the bridegroom with his bride. Now, I'm sure you can. Most certainly it's apparent this fits perfectly. We're at, as I said, the end of the seven years of tribulation, and at the end of the seven years, the wedding feast is celebrated. Here in chapter 19. And what comes next? I always want to say hallelujah. The second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ with you and me. The bride. The church. 
And so verse 7 and 8, it tells us, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife, very important here, his wife has made herself ready. And to her it is granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. But the fine linen, it speaks of, here it is. You know, people, oh, so much symbolism in the book of Revelation. If you read it, it's kind of right there. Notice the fine linen. What is it symbolic of? What does it speak of? It's the righteous acts of the saints. What makes the bride ready? Write this down. Once you go chew on it later. John chapter 6. Very interesting. I've got the verse, I think. Yeah, I do have it. John chapter 6. They came to Jesus. What makes her ready? We're talking about. They came to Jesus and they said, what shall we do? That we may work, note this, the works of God. Would you please note what Jesus said following? Jesus said, this is the work of God. They wanted to know about works, plural. Jesus said, this is the singular work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In short. What makes the bride ready? You need to believe in him whom he has sent. Now, I'm sure they were expecting Jesus to give them an arm length list of things that they needed to do for the works of God. Well, now, let me tell you, my brothers, you need to tithe. You got to tithe now. If you want to do the works of God, you've got to tithe. Don't you forget that's. Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, chapel. Okay? You want to do the works of God, you've got to come to church. Want to do the works of God? Got to pray. Got to devote. Got to do this. Got to do that. Got to do this. Got to do that. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Holy, stop. It's not about the works of God. It's about the singular work of God, and that is to believe on him. And that's how the bride made herself ready. And then notice she was arrayed in fine linen. The bridal gown is the righteousness of the saints. Isaiah 61 verse 10 describes the righteousness of the saints. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And then Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness. It's like filthy rags. You see, to make yourself ready is to simply believe in what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. It's not about the works of God. It's about the work of God. Nothing more, nothing less, just Calvary. Don't add anything to grace and don't take anything away from grace. Here's the equation. Grace plus Zippo equals salvation. Amen? Don't add anything to that. Now notice, I'm going to wrap it up really quick. We've got one more verse. Hang with me. John is blown away. This is too much. 
John is blown away. He cannot believe what he is seeing as he sees the bride prepared and robed in righteousness. And then John, he makes a really big mistake. Notice in verse 10, and I, John, fell at his feet, who? The angelic being, to worship him. But he said to me in verse 10, see that you do not do that. Don't do this. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. This is what you're to do. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John is blown away, as I said. He fell down and he began to worship the messenger. The angel said, don't do that. Don't fall down and worship me. I'm just a servant. We need to worship God. Now listen, I'm not trying to be rude, not trying to be disrespectful, but most certainly I think the Mormon should read this verse. Because Joseph Smith worshipped an angel by the name of Moroni. You know that. And the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they should read this verse because they say that Jesus and Michael the Archangel are the same. Now listen, if Jesus and Michael the Archangel are the same person, then Jesus sinned. Because, why, Rodney? Because he allowed people to worship him. Jesus received worship. It's all over the Bible, particularly in the Gospels. Jesus received worship from a leper in Matthew 8. Matthew 9, Jairus came and asked for help. The disciples worshipped him after he calmed the storm in Matthew 15 or 14, verse 33. Matthew 15, the woman of Cana who wanted her daughter delivered from demons. John chapter 9, the blind man worshipped him. And we know that Thomas worshipped him. As Jesus walked through the wall and he said, Thomas, take your fingers and stick them in my hand and take your hand and stick it into my side and don't be doubting, but believe. And what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. And he worshiped him. Jesus received worship. Jesus received worship. And the angel said, look, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant and your brother who had the testimony of Jesus. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I've heard this verse used and these words used, and it's weird what people say about these words. The fact is, if you're taking notes, write this down. What does this mean? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Simply this, simply this, it's all about Jesus. That's what it means. It's all about Jesus. John chapter 5, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said to them, he said, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have life. He said, but they, the scriptures, are they that testify of me. Jesus said the whole Bible's written about me. Jesus, in Hebrews, it says he has come in the volume of the book. The Bible from cover to cover is about Jesus. And if you hear any prophecy that is not about Jesus and has Jesus at the center, it is not of God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is the sum and the substance of prophecy. All things point to Jesus. All prophetic utterances point to Jesus. And the spirit and the essence of prophecy is to bear witness of Jesus.
It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. Amen. I was coming from the beach this week and, you know, in a country, some of these country roads, they have these these houses. Have you noticed, you guys? They have these these places and it's like, come in, Sister Barbara wants to read your hand. And it's weirdness. And these people actually go into these places and Sister Barbara, the psychic advisor, She's telling them, oh, well, the stars are telling me this, and the angel has spoken that to me, and, 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 and I'm telling you that this is what you need to do and how you need to approach this, and prophetically I'm speaking to you, and all this nonsense that has absolutely nothing to do about Jesus, with Jesus. If people are talking about that which is spiritual and Jesus is not at the core, it is the wrong answer, weakest link. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch and Calvary Chapel Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. Or you may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the media library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.